you should create your life rather than live it. And all of that can be a creative act. Everything from the relationships you build to the home that you live in to the way that you structure your normal day, like all of that can be work of art in a sense. In some ways, I almost think this is like the greatest thing that a human can provide. You can be this creative force that can call forth something that didn't exist before. You can design or structure or create or build something that didn't exist. And that is such a powerful ability. Okay, today's guest is an exciting one. It's James Clear. James is a writer and speaker focused on habits, decision-making, and continuous improvement. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Atomic Habits, which is still currently number one. The book has sold over 10 million copies worldwide and has been translated into more than 50 languages. Clear is a regular speaker at Fortune 500 companies, and his work has been featured in places like Time Magazine, New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, and on CBS This Morning. His popular 321 email newsletter is sent out each week to more than 2 million subscribers. And as you'll learn on the podcast, I am a huge fan. Uh, I love Atomic Habits. It really helped me validate and cement and optimize a lot of my systems and habits. And really what I most admire about James in this book is it's not just for people that are interested in business or hacking or tools. It's really about life design and really creating your life to be what you want it to be. And James and I talk a lot about that. Um, it really comes clear how important the active creating is to him and in this book and yeah i just really uh, honored and energized by the conversation and i know you will enjoy it too thank you we are here today with james clear hey on the gravity podcast and it's fun for me i was thinking about this before you came in i've interviewed a lot of people on the podcast a lot of friends, people I respect and admire. It's not often that I'm a fan. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, I was actually kind of nervous about this today. You know, I don't know. You might not be by the time we get to the end of the conversation. So I'll have to wait and see. But well, thank you. That's very nice. We'll find out. But no, you know, I, I actually just like a lot of people, you know, read Atomic Habits and, you know, did a little research and, and follow you, you know, social media and, and subscribe to the newsletter. And and it's really been pretty impactful to learn and read and, you know, kind of be on the journey that you've got millions of people on now. And so, yeah, I, I, you know, when somebody can make that kind of an impact in your life, you know, it's, it's fun to get a chance to, to be. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. Thank you for saying that. Yeah. And happy to talk to you and uh, glad you enjoyed the book. And yeah, man, I appreciate your reading. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So. You know, I think most people know you as this New York Times bestselling author. You know, the, the book is a phenomenal success. I mean, it really is everywhere and has been for a long time. And as we were talking a little bit before we started recording, you know, what I've been trying to do is really show people how they too can achieve big things and can be successful in their lives and see themselves in your journey. 
And so I wanted to start at the beginning and, and understand a little bit from your childhood. Maybe you can help us start to connect the dots. Mm -hmm. You know, who were you as a kid and, and what was it that, you know, you can think back on in hindsight and, you know, see that might've been a part of this path. Yeah. I had a good childhood. I, I was born and raised in Hamilton, Ohio. I spent a lot of my time running around on my grandparents' farm. They lived like five minutes from my parents. So we were over there all the time, multiple times a week. Every Sunday, we would go to church and then go back to my grandparents for breakfast, go back home for like three hours, and then go back to my grandparents' house where all my cousins and aunts and uncles would come and my grandma would cook dinner for like 18 people every Sunday. <laughs> And it wasn't until I left and went to college that I realized that that was not like a normal thing. That was just part of my childhood. And so I was, I was very family focused in that way. And I was really close with my cousins growing up and enjoyed that. I'm the oldest of three. So yeah, there was just a lot of kids running around. It was a great time. And then other major kind of events or big things in my childhood. I always liked school. School was kind of like a game to me and I enjoyed trying to like figure out how to play it. Mm. I was always curious and kind of like thirsty for knowledge and enjoyed the learning process. It was school was not like a burden to me. I have a lot of friends now who are entrepreneurs and I kind of feel like the black sheep among that group because a lot of my friends like really hated school or just felt like they were always being forced into a certain box and you know they wanted to break out and build their own business or do their own thing. And I never really felt that way growing up. I if anything I was probably like trying to figure out how do I stay inside the box and like, you know, really succeed in whatever the defined way is to do that in school. So it wasn't until later till probably until like high school and definitely college that I started to get this urge to like start my own thing and be like, oh, okay, I am actually pretty entrepreneurial. Mm -hmm. So that came a little bit later on. Just in there a little bit. So, you know, it's an interesting thing. You're right, especially in the entrepreneurial world. And I'm one of those people that hated school and wasn't, yeah. you know, interested in studying and learning that way. But, you know, when you when you think about kind of who you were at that point and why you were approaching school that way, is there any anything that comes to mind as to why you were that way? Well, I don't know how much of this was like personality and just genetics and like who I am and how much of it was culture and like how I was kind of shaped, you know, both family and friends and things like that. Mm -hmm. But I had a lot of friends who were smart. I was never, this is a kind of a theme throughout my life. I was never the fastest or the best player on any team I was on. I was never the smartest kid in any of the classes I was in, but I was always hanging around with those kids and I was always competitive with them. I was always like kind of in that zone, but I was never the best. And that really kept me driven, mm -hmm. I think. But it also helped me, yeah, it helped me connect with people who had different skills. And mm -hmm. so, you know, I had some friends who were like like real nerds, you know, mm -hmm. like they, we started a robotics club in fifth grade where mm -hmm. we program Legos to go around on a conveyor belt. And some of my friends in high school were building their own computers. And like, mm -hmm. I wasn't the person that would initiate that, but I was always around that kind of activity. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, once you start building friendships with people, if they're getting good grades and there's kind of this like subtle competition for you to get good grades too and stuff, like, mm -hmm. I don't know, I was kind of like in that, yeah. you know, just in that sphere. Mm -hmm. And so I soaked up a little bit of that. And then same thing on the, on the uh, sports field. So that was another kind of theme I was going to bring up from my mm -hmm. childhood. Mm -hmm. Sports played a big part. I would say sports and school were kind of the two big things in my family. Like none of us play instruments, for example. So I have like no musical ability, but my dad played professionally. He played in the minor leagues for the St. Louis Cardinals. So he was a pitcher. 
And growing up, I always wanted to be, you know, like that too. And so I played baseball, of course, but then also basketball, swimming, you know, I played one season of football In football, there are kids who are getting hit and kids who are giving hits. And I was always getting hit. So I didn't, I didn't pursue that one for as long, but yeah. So anyway, those were, those are some of the big themes throughout my life. So I would say like strong family connection and enjoying sports in school. That was mm-hmm. kind of a lot of my childhood. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm curious, the sports part, you know, I see that a lot in really high achievers that there's something about, you know, being in that competitive atmosphere or the discipline it takes. Yeah. Obviously, in your case, you know, it's in the family. So maybe talk a little bit about, you know, just what that was doing to shape you at that time. I think looking back on my athletic career now, so I ended up, I ended up playing through baseball through college. I never played professionally. I did end up having a good college career and feel like I kind of maximized my potential. But um, I did not have the talent to play professionally, but I think I probably did have the mindset or the attitude. So I couldn't, I couldn't do it because I wasn't, I wasn't capable enough. But I was able later to take that same kind of mindset, that competitive drive, that fire, the desire to compete at a high level, the desire to push yourself and try to improve your skills, to show up consistently at practice. All of those traits that were expressed in sports early in my life ended up being really useful in business over the next 10 years after that. So I just needed to find the channel that worked best for me. You know, it turns out maybe I have more ability as like, say, a writer or an entrepreneur than I do as an athlete. I didn't know that as a kid. I was just Mm -hmm. trying to play sports and have fun. But once I was able to direct that energy or that personality, that attitude that I had toward something where I had a little more ability, then the results were better. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know that you, after you were done at Denison playing baseball, and I don't know the timing of this, but I know eventually you went back to Ohio State and got an MBA. Yep. And there were a number of stints from what I could find on in business or in various, you know, kind of early stages of a career. And, and maybe you could just talk a little bit about that transition, because obviously yeah. you end up. I mean, you're, you're clearly an entrepreneur. You, you clearly have a pretty you know, big business here that seems to be like still almost early stage mm-hmm. you know, for the potential of it all. Mm-hmm. But you got there through writing, right? And so I'm kind of curious about like the steps that were happening when you, when you graduate from college, you decide that you're not going to play professional baseball. Yeah. That's not in the cards, you know, then what happens? Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of decided for me. Yeah. (laughs) So there's some interesting steps kind of along the way. So the first is I mentioned, you know, Hey, I really liked school. I was kind of into that. And then sometime around college, I started getting this like entrepreneurial bug more where I was like, Hey, you know, I didn't, I actually didn't even know this until myself about maybe a year or two ago, but Ultimately, what I really love is creating things. Maybe that's sometimes it's a business, sometimes it's a book, maybe it's designing a new house, maybe whatever the project is. I really like the act of creating something from nothing. And I did not know that about myself until recently, but that has been a core theme or personality trait of mine for a long time. So when I went to college, I looked at all the, the majors and they were fine, but like none of them really stuck out to me. And eventually I found out that you could design your own major at Denison. And so I was like, oh, well, I'll do that. So I just looked through the course catalog, picked all the classes that I wanted to take, laid them all out on a piece of paper. And then I said, okay, what would you call this major if you put all these classes together? And 
it turns out biomechanics was what I ended up calling it. It was like mostly biology and some anatomy classes. And there was like one or two physics thrown in there. And so it was, I liked the sciences at the time and that was what I wanted to take. So I just threw it all out there and then I sent it to the academic affairs council and they said, yeah, okay, that could be your major. And I didn't know that at the time, but looking back now, you're like, oh, that's kind of a fairly entrepreneurial thing to do. You look at the set of options, you say, I don't really like any of these. I'm going to create my own. Mm -hmm. So that happened. Then I started doing some other things like after each semester, I would go up and down the halls in the dorm and I would ask anybody, I would say, hey, you want me to sell your textbooks for you? Like your your old textbooks from last semester. And everybody's like, yeah, okay, sure. I was like, all right, I'll just sell them and I'll split the money with you. And they're like, all right, that's fine. So on my end, I was getting free inventory, right? I didn't have to pay anything for the cost of goods. And then I would go on Amazon and because it was free to me, I would just list it at, I would just undercut the price on every textbook. So I would just list it for the cheapest amount possible. And it was all just free profit. And then I split it with all my friends. And then, so that was actually, I wouldn't call that a business, but that was like my first business or entrepreneurial thing. Sure. Yeah. So I did that. And then I graduated and I went to Ohio state while I was there, I was studying I was, I mean, I was getting my MBA, but my graduate assistantship, my job on campus was to work in the center for entrepreneurship and study venture capital investment in the Midwest. So I did that and I was seeing, I was kind of analyzing all these companies that were getting funded. And I was like, you know, all these people are starting their own business. Like maybe I could start my own thing. And so as I was like looking at all these people doing these startups for a year or two, I was, that was when I was like, you know what, maybe I should just try to do this. Like, I'm not really excited about getting a corporate job or doing what all the other people in the MBA class are doing. Like maybe I should try my own thing. The only problem was I didn't have any money. (laughs) And so my MBA program sent out this email and they said, Hey, there's this conference in Switzerland called the St. Gallen symposium. And if you apply to the conference, you have to submit an essay. And if your essay is selected, they will fly you to Switzerland. And I had never been abroad. And so I thought, well, that sounds cool. I'd like to go abroad like that. That would be fun. So I submitted an essay and I got to go to the conference the first year. My second year, my last year of the MBA, I submitted an essay again. And this time I ended up winning. And the top prize for winning that essay competition was $10,000. And so I went to Switzerland in May. I graduated in June and I had 10 grand in my bank account. So I was like, all right, so this is the money I'm going to live off of and use to start to start my business. And so, um, it took me, lived off of that for a few months. Then I moved back into my parents' house. I lived there for, I think 11 months. And then, so it was probably about 18 months in to the entrepreneurial journey that I was able to move out on my own and get my own apartment and like had enough money coming in. And those first two years of entrepreneurship were very, you know, I think every entrepreneur has some version of this story, really gritty. You're not making any money. You have no respect or credibility. You don't really know what you're doing. There are a lot of one-time costs that have to be paid. Like I didn't know how to build a website. So I had to Mm -hmm. teach myself that skill. And then I didn't know how to set up an email list. So I had to do that. And then, you know, all these things you got to do for the first time. And then on top of all those first time things that you're doing, you have to do the actual business that you're trying to build. Yeah. So I tried a bunch of different websites early on, probably four or five different ones. Um, I had one one idea where I bought puppypresent.com. And I thought, well, my girlfriend likes playing with puppies. So what if I create this marketplace where you go to breeders and you say, hey, you guys got all these puppies you haven't sold yet. What if you could rent out an hour for people to come play with them? And so then, you know, like you guys take cut, I'll take a cut, whatever. 
And I thought it was a smart idea, but the breeders hated it. They were like, you just want to come play with the dogs, but you don't want to buy them. And I was yeah. like, yes, exactly. And they're like, absolutely not. Right. So I had a bunch of bad ideas like yeah. that. I had an iPhone app. I, so remember I had that 10 grand and I paid, I used 1500 bucks of it to get an iPhone app designed, put it up on the app store. I think to this day, it made a grand total of like $17. So that was a bad, <laughs> that was a bad trade. So I, I tried a bunch of things mm-hmm. and a lot of them didn't work out. And then I was taking some freelance clients on the side just to kind of make ends meet. And then eventually started jamesclear.com. So November 12th, 2012, that was the first post on, on jamesclear.com. Okay. And I want to talk about why, you know, you, you started that, but just to back up on some of those other entrepreneurial uh, sure. journeys, because I think you're right. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. You know, a lot of times you do really need to throw a bunch up against the wall and see what sticks. And Sometimes it hits right away. Sometimes it never hits, mm. right? But kind of curious just to learn a little bit more about like what was underneath the desire to be creating in, in the business world. Uh-huh. You know, I, I don't know what your parents did or kind of what was what else kind of drove you into business to begin with. Yeah. And and what was it? You know, I know you saw the VC, you know, I don't know if it was just sort of the energy, the money, the you know, sizzle of it all, but like, why, why were you trying to create in that way? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I wasn't really engaged with the sizzle of it all or the funding. I, I have never had a venture funded company. I don't, I don't have anything against it, but it's just not my style. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm a bootstrapping entrepreneur. I did not have any entrepreneurs in my family. So my dad worked in insurance for 40 years. My mom had first career as a nurse and then her second career for the last like 15 years or so is as a, an assistant in a kindergarten classroom. So I didn't have anybody to look to as either an author or an entrepreneur. I didn't have any close friends who were building businesses. So the thing that pulled me in was I was reading some blogs around that time that they were starting to make their full-time income from it. And I was like, wow, the, all these people do is they write a blog and then they can like travel where they want. That was something that was really important to me in my 20s. I really wanted to be able to travel and get out and see the world because I hadn't done that before. Um, they have flexibility. They can write about like what they want to write about. They get to like pick the projects that they focus on. You know, I had an internship between my first and second year of my MBA program and it was at an orthopedic practice. And for a long time, I thought, hey, maybe I'll go to medical school and do that. And it was, so it was a good fit for my interests, but I felt very underutilized there. I would go, I'd show up at work each day, and then I would only be asked to do this very narrowly defined set of tasks. And if it wasn't inside of that narrowly defined role, I wasn't asked to contribute. And I would go home and I just thought, man, you know, like, I feel like I have so much more to give mm-hmm. and I'm just not being asked to do any of this stuff. Like I have so much creative energy right now. I have so much I want to contribute. And it was like, well, that's not your job. And so entrepreneurship's like the exact opposite of that. You know, you have to be CEO and janitor and everything mm-hmm. in between. And, and I really liked that part of it. So um, anyway, I didn't have anybody to look to, but I did have the strong desire to have control of my time and to feel fully utilized, to feel like I could like give my best effort towards something and like make it my own. And again, like I just said a minute ago, I did not know this about myself at the time, but I really enjoy the act of creating things, of creating something from nothing. And so that, that energy was inside of me at that time, even though I couldn't have described it to you. But what I really wanted was to like make my own thing and build something that I could feel proud of. And so I think all of that was the primary driver behind it. Yeah, I guess I'm going to just 
ask this question now because it's come up a couple times just as I've been listening to you talk and mm. you talking about the act of creating, which is a which is a real passion of mine and and really, you know, gets into my worldviews and beliefs in general. And, you know, I'm not entirely sure how I feel about this, but I do tend to believe that we're all born to be creating. Mm. And, um, you know, what I think of when I think of atomic habits, what was like a real like aha for me is that it's, it's sort of designing your life, that you're creating your life, right? That creativity yeah. as I was uh, a kid was really focused on the fine arts, mm -hmm. right? You were an artist if you were creative, you know, maybe you were a musician, but creating your life to be what you want it to be, creating the experiences that you want to have, the relationships you want to have, your mindset, yep. that is all an act of, of creativity. And, and I wonder what you think, but I think we're all meant to be that, that we come from that, that's who we are, that it's about being this creative source of energy that somehow gets lost along the way. And I just wanted to hear your thoughts on that. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you're striking a deep chord with me right now. You know, I think um, this is one of my core approaches or philosophies to life, which is you should create your life rather than live it. And all of that can be a creative act. Every, everything from the relationships you build to the home that you live in, to the way that you structure your normal day, like all of that can be work of art in a sense. Yeah. And it's definitely not just a painter or a sculptor or a musician who is a creative force. In some ways, I almost think this is like the greatest thing that a human can provide. You can be this creative force that can call forth something that didn't exist before. You can design or structure or create or build something that didn't exist. And that is such a powerful ability. And so I love that act doing that. It, the other thing is if you broaden your definition of what is creative, then it starts to make life more fun. I think mm -hmm. you realize that there, like, there aren't really any rules. And like, one of my favorite things is so. Like, I have a just as an, as an example, I have a cabin in the woods, and there are like all kinds of cool wildlife on the property. And I don't get to see it because whenever I'm walking around, they're hiding. But I would love to know, like, what is out there. So um, I just sent a cold email to this guy who works at National Geographic and who sets up all of their camera traps to do wildlife photography. And so they're all like motion triggered. He you know sets up a camera in the woods and then if an animal walks in front of the beam, it you know takes three shots or whatever. And so I sent him this email to try to convince him to come out to the property and teach me how do you do what you do and set up these, you know, these remote triggered cameras and everything. And it took a couple of attempts, but eventually he was like, all right, fine. Like I'll, I'll come out and show you. And so he came out and it's so cool. And now I have four of those set up and we got <laughs> photos of, you know, bobcats and raccoons and mm -hmm. turkeys and all kinds of stuff. And he told me, he was like, you know, when you first sent me that email, I kind of thought this guy's a little crazy. He doesn't really know what he's asking, you know, <laughs> but he was like, once I talked to you, I was like, okay, fine. Like, you know, this will, yeah. this will be fine. And I use that kind of approach all the time in life. And the point that I'm getting at is I feel like most people just sort of assume that something like that is kind of out of reach. Yeah. That like, oh, how would I even get in touch with a National Geographic photographer? Like, how, how would that even be possible? I wouldn't yeah. know what to do to take wildlife photos. And like, the truth is, I had no idea what to do either, but there are no rules. So I just emailed the person who does that thing and then yeah. see if I can convince them to come out and see what I can learn from them. Yeah. 
And if you take that kind of thinking and apply it to every area of life, you would be stunned what you can like come across and learn and build. Like there's so many cool things that you can interface with. And it's just the courage and the willingness to reach out or initiate or send a cold email and, you know, kind of view it as like, there is no rule. It's just a story in your head that this is something that's hard to do. Like you yeah. just need to get over that little story and then there are all kinds of things open up. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually was curious about this and, and I'm going to come back to it because there's a question I had for you about um, kind of how much like room to leave for those kinds of things mm. to oh, yeah. be explored. But, but I want to come back to the starting of jamesclear.com. Sure. Because I, I am curious, you know, where that came from. Like, how did you all of a sudden decide this was going to be the thing that you were going to create? Yeah. And, you know, what I want to know is the habits piece, you know, where you landed, like how much of that was already in your life or did it come after yeah. you started it? Yeah, no, it's a good question. Okay, so I mentioned that kind of 18-month, two-year period earlier on where I'm trying these different ideas. And part of that process, I tried a couple different blogs. I had one where I wrote about like freelancing tips or, you know, personal finance tips because that was stuff that I was thinking about a lot at that time because I was taking some freelance clients and stuff. Anyway, the point being, I wrote about a variety of topics. And eventually, I launched jamesclear.com. And I was like, you know what? Rather than trying to like build a brand, because that's what I had been trying to do before, was pick some business and build a brand. I'll just write about what I'm most interested in. And so I wrote about a bunch of stuff. I wrote about how to have better squat form in the gym. I wrote about the medical system in America. I wrote about building better habits and being creative and productive. And eventually what ended up happening is there's like this Venn diagram overlap of things I'm interested in and then things the audience is interested in. And whenever I wrote about habits or strategy or decision-making or productivity, I got way better feedback from people. Mm. That was when people were like, oh, this is kind of cool. Like, what else do you have to say about that? And then the other stuff was kind of like, that's fine, but maybe keep it to yourself, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it was just sort of following my nose and getting a little bit about that feedback from the audience that made me realize, okay, I should focus here more. So that was one signal. The other signal, and I think this is true just for any habit that you're trying to build. I feel like a lot of the time when people build habits, they choose the habits that they kind of think they should have or that like society encourages them to have or their parents want them to have or their peers want them to have. And really need to do is choose the version of a habit that is most genuinely exciting and interesting to you. You know, like the most common New Year's resolution is some form of fitness. Go to the gym, exercise more, whatever. I feel like a lot of people pick that just because they think they should go to the gym. You know, but my question is like, well, there are a lot of ways to live an active lifestyle. What is the form of exercise that is most genuinely interesting and exciting to you? You could rock climb or kayak or do yoga or lift weights or, you know, go for a run. Like there's so many different forms of an active lifestyle. You should choose the version of the habit that is most exciting to you. Another way to frame that question would be like, what would this look like if this was easy for me? What would this look like if this was fun for mm. me? And you should choose the version of the habit that's the most fun. So what I'm getting to with the launch of jamesclear.com and writing about these different topics is I had this Word document that I would, so I mentioned that internship that I had at the orthopedic practice. When I had like a free hour, I would just have that Word document up in the background and I would just be like riffing and writing some thoughts down. And turns out that document ended up being like 60 pages long. It was just a bunch of my notes. And a lot of it was about habits. A lot of it was about building better habits. 
I'm in the middle of grad school. I'm in the middle of, I have an internship. Like I'm not thinking about building a company on that, but I was already there naturally. Like it was just already a topic that I was curious about and interested in. And I think that was kind of a big signal where it was like, Hey, I bet your writing is better on that topic because people can sense the energy that you're putting into it. The fact that you're genuinely curious and interested in it. So I think those, those two signals, the audience liked it a little bit more and I was naturally engaged in it. Those were two of the main things that drove me to write about it. Makes sense. And, and at what point did you consider yourself to be a writer, (laughs) you know, because you kind of describe it as you just hopped right in and started writing stuff. But, but I wondered, you know, did you think of yourself as like being a writer or were you just writing about those things that you were passionate about sort of naturally? Um, so it took a long time for me to view myself as a writer. You know, I still kind of, I mean, I, now I have to admit that I'm an author because I have the book and it's out. I still view myself more as an entrepreneur than as an author. I began writing out of necessity, not because it was something that I necessarily wanted to do. I launched some products, like I launched that iPhone app and it just tanked. And I realized some of the lessons I took from some of these early business ventures was, hey, launching these products and they're not going anywhere. Why is that? Well, one of the main issues is I don't have an audience. I don't have anybody that I'm selling this to or telling about it. I have no way to market it. And so I did some research and read a bunch of blogs and books and stuff about how to solve the problem. And turns out a lot of people were saying, look, what you really need is an email list. You need to have an audience so that you can have somebody to tell when you release your next product. So I started a blog to build an email list. I started it for, for a business purpose. And this weird thing happened, which is the more that I started writing, uh, well, there were really two things. The first was I found out, you know, I actually kind of like the writing part of it. I wasn't expecting that, but actually, this is actually kind of fun. Or elements of it are fun. And then the second piece was, it turns out that I was actually pretty good at building an email list. That was a skill that I had. And I hadn't really discovered many business skills that I had before that. I had tried a lot of things. None of them really did very well but was like, oh, this is something that actually you're getting decent results with. So when I discovered those two things, then it was like, that's interesting because I like the process of writing. So let's keep doing that. It's building me this audience. And I realized pretty early on that that was the thing I wanted to focus on was audience growth because an audience is an incredibly flexible asset. Once you have it, once you have a million people following you, it doesn't have to be a million. Once you have a thousand people following your, your newsletter, Now you have a thousand people that you can email about anything, about a new podcast episode you're launching, about a product that's coming out, about your keynote speaking and like whether how you can hire you to be a consultant, like literally anything. Yeah. And so the audience is such a valuable, it's the backbone of my whole business. And so that's like kind of where I started and what I focused on. And I still considered that to be like the engine of the business, even though Atomic Habits is like the focal point and the face of the brand. On the back end, it's really just a product. Yeah. And the real business is the audience. Yeah. Yeah. And it's 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 good for you, I think, for the audience to hear this audience, the um how small you made it. I mean, it's like you you were using your own habits mm. to build what became atomic habits, yeah. right? Like you had to start by getting a thousand. Yeah. Right. When you wrote that first blog, you had none. Yep. Right. And so I think oftentimes people skip over that part and yep. they say to themselves, well, he has a huge following. Mm-hmm. You know, you didn't start with a huge following. Sure. You started somewhere. 
Yeah. Right. And and built on it. I remember when uh, a couple different milestones. So I remember when I got my first 3000 subscribers when I crossed the 3000 mark. I also remember the first time that I got 100 subscribers in a day, in a single day. And we went out to dinner to celebrate. And now we get like 3000 subscribers a day. Yeah, and uh, we don't even talk about it. You know, yeah. we just like gloss over it like it's nothing, which is there's a separate, you know, issue yeah. going on there that you don't celebrate your wins in the, you know, the same way that you used to. But yeah, it started small and that, you know, and that's fine. Like that's how, that's how everybody starts. Like yeah. that's just part of it. And it's a, if you're just starting out as a creator and you're looking at someone like me and you're like, oh, he's got, you know, millions of subscribers and this huge audience and whatever. You also need to realize I've been doing this for like 12 years now. Right. So the reality is most people don't do it for 12 years. That's right. And I'm not saying that you need to do it for 12 to figure out if it's work, if it's working. But a lot of people are like, you know, how do I get these results? And whether it's writing or fitness or something else, my answer is usually like, listen, you want to get in shape, like don't miss a workout for two years and then get back to me and let me know if the program's working or not, you know, or like if you want to build an audience, what I did was I wrote a new article every Monday and Thursday, and I did that for the first three years. So go do that for three years and then see where you're at. Right. And the reality is there are very few people who will actually do that. And so you just cross an enormous threshold just by showing up consistently. Consistently over a period of time. Yeah. You know, it's interesting in my own experience, I'm a pretty high driven human being. I'm curious. I'm constantly focused on growth, busy, doing a lot of stuff and just sort of intuitively had created my own systems. Um, but I didn't really have any validation for those systems. Mm. You know, I didn't really know if they were good. They worked. It just was kind of me making shit up. And then I read your book and I'm like, okay, one, I'm actually doing some of this stuff already. And here's how I can do it better. And really it kind of grounded what was like inside of me that I was playing with and put some structure to it. I can tell you, you know, and I, and sort of thank you because you know, I was, I was already, you know, I think fairly successful. I mean, this is just, you know, within the last year that I've been making the changes after reading the book, but I've seen the change hmm. in my own life. I mean, I have tracking and I have things on my phone and my reminders that I do every day and things that I wasn't doing uh, consistently that now I do for 10 minutes a day and I see the results. And I guess what I'm getting at is, I think what people oftentimes say is it's like hacking or it's like business tools. Like it's not for me. I'm not wired that way. I'm not interested in that kind of stuff. But what it really is, is about a way to live and to have the life that you want. Mm-hmm. And, and I wanted to just kind of hear you talk a little bit about like that part, about this, this like human experience, the back to the creativity, the life that you are really actually building, creating, you know, which is, which is, I think your biggest message in this book is, is it's not about just like getting in shape. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's about becoming the type of person you want to become. It's about building the kind of life that you want to have. And Thank you, by the way. I appreciate you saying all that. I'm glad that you found it useful. I think that's really validating. I've heard a number of readers say things kind of like what you said, which is, you know, I'm already sort of doing some of this stuff and this is just putting a language to it or kind of maybe unpacking it in a slightly different way and giving me a different way to view it. 
And I feel like that's really validating. You know, I had somebody come up to me after a talk one time and say, you know, I was using like half the stuff in this book to train for the Boston Marathon and I didn't even know it. And I was like, good, that's great. Like that makes me think these ideas actually work. You know, like here's somebody executing in real life and they're, they're actually implementing some of the ideas already. So I feel like that's kind of proof of concept, which I, so I really like that. Um, yeah, this concept of like designing your life or structuring your day, using the tools in the book to give you more control. Ultimately, I think what we want is to become the architect of your habits and not the victim of them. You know, a lot of people feel like their habits happen to them. They're almost like, oh, I did it and I didn't even realize it or I'm halfway through the, you know, through the action before I even catch myself doing it. And so it sort of feels like you're out of control of the process. And what I was hoping, one of the things that I was hoping to be able to do with the book is give people a little bit more control over that. Kind of the way that an architect designs a house, can you design your behavior? Can you design your day to look the way you want or to you know, take back control a little bit? And life is dynamic and changing and there's always gonna be elements and aspects of it that you can't control. And that's fine, but there is quite a bit that you can do to take control and you know, design the kind of day that you want to have. And so it's really just about kind of trying to empower people to have the tools they need or the mindset and the frame that they need to be able to do that. And, and was that a part of the original thinking? You know, did you see it as this life design or was it more? How well, you- there was a, there was a movement early on, like when I was kind of getting started called lifestyle design and like the four hour work week was mm-hmm. one of the big books in that whole movement. And so it was a thing that was discussed. And I thought about it a little bit for myself. Like that was kind of when I was launching my blog, I was like, hey, how can I do lifestyle design? How can I, can, how can I like, uh, not necessarily write about it, but how can I live my life that way? So I was thinking about it a little bit, but I would not say that it was like an objective of mine as a writer or as a, you know, an entrepreneur. The thing that I always come back to, what I was trying to do was probably like two or threefold. First, I was trying to create something that was useful. That's like my number one driving thing. Is it valuable? Is it useful? Is it something people, is it like practical and actionable, something people can use? So whatever I share, it needs to pass that threshold. Number two, is it timeless? Is it evergreen? Is it going to like age well? You know, ideally, atomic habits should be just as relevant 25 years from now as it is today. And so I try to write about the principles of human behavior and strategies that are not going to erode or fade away over time. So is it useful? Is it timeless? And then the third thing is, is it fascinating to me? Mm -hmm. Am I interested in it? Because I do think that your level of interest kind of bleeds through the writing. It comes out. And so people have a good sort of BS meter for that. You know, if you're just kind of faking it, then they kind of, they kind of know. And Something that you mentioned earlier was that I kind of had to use some of these ideas to write Atomic Habits. I had to, had to build habits to build the business and, and write the book. And I think that's true. And I, as best as possible, I try to only write about ideas that I practice in real life because I think it makes the ideas better. Yeah. Um, you know, like strange little thing happens where you write a book about habits. People are like, oh, do you have any bad habits? Like, yeah, what are you talking about? You know, like, all, do you procrastinate? Yeah, all the time. Probably procrastinating on something right now as we're talking, you know? Right. Or like, do you focus too much on the goal and not enough on the system? Yes, of course. Like that whole chapter was basically a reminder to myself to yeah. focus more on the process. Yeah. So pretty much everything I write is just a reminder to me. And it turns out it's also useful to a lot of other people. Yeah. But they're universal problems. You know, they're things sure. that we all struggle with. And yeah. so... 
my publisher told me, you know, we write the books we need. And I feel like that was really true in my case. Yeah. I was curious about that. You know, what kind of like pressure, you know, comes with, mm. you know, being this guy, you know, and having a book of that success, you know, I'm just kind of curious, like, uh, to hear a little bit more about how you are in your daily life, yeah. you know, and, and to the extent that you use the habits and to the extent that the habits are evolving as you're evolving. Sure. And if you feel pressured to, you know, live a certain way. Yeah. That's an interesting question. I don't really feel a lot of pressure. I think I, I try to keep like the audience at a distance in that way and not good, worry about yeah. it too much. I don't know. I had a couple other friends who like wrote really successful books or launched a really successful business. And it was interesting watching them go through it a little bit earlier than I did and just seeing how different people dealt with it. You know, some of them dealt with it really well. Some of them struggled with it. And just the way that I view it is this is the best possible outcome you could hope for. You know, like I was trying to write something useful and share it with the world and it took off and became this big thing. And that's great. And I'm, I'm really fortunate. I'm really lucky that it's making an impact and that it's, it's useful for people's lives. So that's the best thing you could hope for. Now, does it come with trade-offs? Sure. Like there are other things now that like I wasn't expecting or didn't ask for that I have to deal with. Like there's way more inbound now than I can handle. So I had to switch, flip a switch overnight from saying yes to like almost every opportunity for like 10 years to try to grow the business to now I need to say no to almost every opportunity. So that was hard for me to learn. And I feel like I'm still three to six months behind on what I should be saying no to. I'm like always getting on the hook for more than I should be. So that's just, you know, that's just part of the learning. Um, the probably the biggest downside of things blowing up and getting really busy is, and probably my, my least favorite thing about all the opportunity that comes in is that you become so busy that it's hard to be thoughtful. And that manifests itself in a lot of different ways. You know, if you have a lot of people asking for your time and tugging on your time and attention, everybody feels like they're kind of, you know, they try to make it easy on you. They're like, hey, it's just a small request. But when you get, you know, 30 of those a day, then you, it starts to grate on you a little bit. You feel like you gotta say no to everybody. You feel like you're trying to defend your time, but you're also trying to maintain your relationships. And so like that's that balance is hard. Um, you get so busy that you're not thoughtful with just like normal stuff. Like you're, you're zipping around to different cities. So, so much to do talks or to present at companies or to do different things that you should be writing a thank you note about something that happened last Tuesday, but you're on the next flight and you like have already forgotten about that. And then you turn around and you don't remember it until like a month later. So then you're like, well, do I try to save face and send this thing a month late? Or do I just like hope they didn't notice and then don't send it at all. And there's just like little things like that that end up creeping in that you you don't think about as being a trade-off. And, you know, I do worry about like, do people think, oh, you know, do, do they think, oh, he's not as kind as he used to be? Or do they think, you know, he's so hard to get a hold of now? Like, you know, why is he big leaguing me and, you know, like ignoring me and stuff? And like, I don't, you know, I don't want to be like that. Like, yeah. I, I just want to be, be able to handle it like I used to. But it's just a consequence of the volume. And yeah. that's, that's an interesting downside. Yeah. I mean, I think that's something, you know, at a different level in my own way, I've also struggled with and had to work through and find some peace with and yeah. still always have to work on, you know, you don't want to, you know, tell people you don't have time for them or sure. somehow indicate that maybe they're not important enough. Right. And you also don't want to miss out on like the, what, what good comes from those kind of conversations yeah. too. 
So this kind of takes me back to the question I was thinking about earlier, which is this like openness, this space, mm. right? Because you get busy. And, and like in my case, some of the habits that I've really nailed down are morning routines, their healthcare. I mean, I have a whole thing I do with journaling and prayer and meditating and mm -hmm. breath work. And then there's cold plunges and saunas and workout and gratitude. And, sure. right? yeah. and you're like, well, I don't want to be so busy with my habits that I forget yeah. or don't have space to do the kinds of things that just sort of naturally organically come in when there's room. Yep. So I was kind of curious about, you know, you unpacking how to make space for the, the, the less programmed part of the life. Yeah. Yeah. This is a common question, you know, like, Hey, you know, I don't want my habits to be, I don't want really to feel pigeonholed or, you know, feel like I'm robot. You know, I want to have room for creativity and spontaneity and to be flexible and capitalize on things when they arise. And, you know, my first response is like, most people aren't actually in danger of being that structured. It's like pretty rare. You, you may have some personalities that are like really robotic that they, you know, they can actually be that structured, but it's, it's pretty rare. Um, however, the, the bigger answer is habits don't restrict freedom. They create it. So it's usually the people who have the worst habits that feel like they have the least amount of freedom. So for example, the people who have the worst financial habits feel like they're always wondering where the next dollar is going to come from or the people who have the worst health and fitness habits feel like they never have enough energy, or the people who have the worst learning and reading habits feel like they're always behind the curve. And so it's actually by getting a few core habits dialed in that you create the capacity, the resources, whether that's money or time or energy, to do the things that are flexible and spontaneous and creative. Now, it's still totally possible to be overscheduled. You know, it's totally possible to have too many meetings or to be tugged in too many directions. But I don't know that that has so much to do with habits unless you just talk about it in a very broad sense, like the habit of saying yes to a meeting, as it does with managing your calendar and managing your time. So the way that I try to do it is I have a few pillar things that really, the question that I ask myself is when I'm really on, when I'm living a good day, what are the key components of that day? What are the things that tend to be a part of that? And so for me, working out, that's like probably my key habit. Sleep is another big one. So sleep, working out, reading, and writing. Those are, those are like the four, and that's just, you know, that's tailored. The reading and writing is tailored to my business, right? Like those are the two core activities that drive the whole business. So you can think about what that might be for yourself, for your own business or your own life. What are those core habits? If you only get to pick two to four, what are they? That when you do those, you're living a good day. And I try to get those dialed in and be robotic and consistent and, you know, scheduled with that. And then the rest of the day, I just kind of leave it open and, you know, I'll respond to things as I need to. If I need to schedule meetings that day, I'll schedule a meeting. If I need to be, do some interviews that day, I'll do some interviews. But like, I don't worry too much about the rest of it if I've knocked down those big blocks. Interesting. And because I personally am interested in, in those four things, maybe you could just say like a little something about each one, mm -hmm. the kind of workout or, yeah. you know, sleep in particular sure. and reading. I'm curious what you read, what you read, what you're reading. And I also want to hear a little bit about what you're writing and, yeah, yeah. and what's next. So let's start with sleep. I have young kids now, so sleep is at a premium. 
it has shifted over time. It used to be I'd go to bed later, but now, you know, going to bed at 10 or something like that is much more reasonable for me to be able to get a full seven or eight hours. And so I try to get in bed around then, sleep for seven, eight hours. Hopefully the kids sleep and everybody's on board and then you're good. Then you get up. I, I have a hard time if I'm running low, if I'm getting below six hours, it's, it's rough. And so I need, I need more. I need to prioritize that. It's better for me to get an extra hour of sleep than it is to work for that extra hour. So that's the first thing. Second thing is exercise. I have gotten to the point where I exercise five days a week and I make them really quick. So about 45 minutes, I'm done. And I try to do that Monday through Friday. I, again, this has shifted over time. You know, at different times in my life, I really liked working out in the early afternoon or in the early evening. Now what I do is I try to get those eight hours of sleep. I wake up, I have breakfast with my kids. I kind of get their day started, get them changed and dressed, and then I go work out. So I usually am working out like 8.30 to 9.30, somewhere in that zone. Um, then I do the reading and the writing stuff. This is a little less structured than like the workout, which always happens kind of at the same hour, but it kind of depends on where I'm at. Am I in the middle of writing a book or is it a Thursday and I need to write a newsletter? It just sort of depends on like what I need to create that day. Um, in terms of reading, there's a, there's a quote about Emerson where they say he read like a hawk flying over a field scanning for prey. And I feel like that's kind of what my reading habits are actually like. I'm not reading in the way that you would normally think someone sits down to read a book and just kind of enjoy it. I'm reading for ideas. I'm like sifting for gold or searching for content. I'm trying to find a spark that gets me to write something. And so I'm kind of reading mostly nonfiction and in a very choppy way. Like I may have 10 different books going at once and it's not about finishing any of them. It's about finding the right chapter in that book to spark an idea for me to write about. And so I'm, I'm just kind of like digging. Um, so that's what my reading habits look like. And then my writing habits are much more dependent on what I'm actually writing. Is it a book? Is it a newsletter? Is it a tweet? So mm -hmm. things like that. And who, who does inspire you? Where, like, you know, I know you're saying nonfiction, mm -hmm. you know, is there anybody in particular? Is, is it more historic? Is yeah. it more current? You know, tell sure. me, where you get your inspiration from. So, you know, again, it, it shifts over time. I've had different people at different times, but one book that was really big for me when I was working on Atomic Habits is A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking. And I read that book and it's like 180 pages and it's about the origins of the, the, origins of the universe and, you know, all these interesting physics concepts. And my thought when I got done was, you know, if he can write a book about this, that is easy to understand. And someone like me who doesn't have a degree in it can follow along. I have no excuse for not being able to write about habits in a way that's easy to understand and easy to apply. And so I like reading authors that are like that, that are talking about important topics, but aren't trying to impress you with their intelligence. They're just trying to distill it into an easy to understand and easy to apply format. So that was a good one. I like books like the Lessons of History by Will and Ariel Durant. So that's a really short book that you can read in like an hour. But it talks about the themes and the lessons throughout history that don't change. The, the themes of human behavior and, and attitudes and mindsets that tend to be consistent across time. And I mentioned that I like writing about timeless things. So I'm usually searching for books like that. Things that either inspire me with the way that they're written. And I think, hey, maybe I could write something in, you know, in that kind of style or they inspire me with the concepts that they share 
And it gives me like a jumping off point for thinking, oh, that's, you know, that's an interesting concept. How does that apply to habits? Now let me write like two paragraphs mm-hmm. about that. And I'm wondering a couple of last questions here, but you mentioned having young kids, you know, life has changed. That changes everything. For I'm sure. wondering how the work that you do, the knowledge you have, the habits that you've built has, has come into your family life. <laughs> and, you know, to the extent that your wife and you are similar, different, you know, and, and how that is sort of informing your creation of your family. And then also how the family is informing the creation of your work. Yeah. Then maybe you could just talk a little bit about, you know, the family part. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Don't have kids if you want to stick to habits. That's my, my takeaway. <laughs> no. So I think a lot about environment and can you set up an environment to create a context where people are more likely to be successful? So. If you take actually having like a pet, like a dog is a good example. You know, if you have a dog and you're going to take it on a walk and it doesn't do well around other dogs and you're walking down the street and you see somebody else walking their dog coming toward you, well, don't go right by them. Like take your dog to the other side of the street, you know, put your dog in a good context, an easy environment for them to have a successful walk. And that's so obvious when we think about things like pets, but you'd be surprised how often we don't make that obvious choice for ourselves. You know, people try to swim upstream all the time. They sit in a noisy environment and they try to write their next article. And it's like, well, you're constantly being distracted. Of course, this is an uphill battle. You know, go find a quiet place to work. And so I think about that with my kids a lot. How can I put them in just in, I don't need to do very much. I don't need to be overly involved, but how can I set up the guardrails and set up a context for them to be more likely to succeed? How can, how can they be in an area where it's easy for them to learn or I don't have to worry about them, you know, getting their finger pinched or, you know, getting hurt or whatever, and then just kind of let them explore and do their thing. So in that way, the work is informing family life. In the opposite direction, how is family informing work? I've come to appreciate more the importance of priorities and the importance of saying no to things, just how few things you can do if you're really in the thick of like raising a family. And I don't think I could have written Atomic Habits the way that it is if I would have had kids first, like it needed to be something that I did before I had a family, because Mm -hmm. the way that I wrote that book was for, there was like a six to nine month period where I woke up, I worked on it for 12 hours a day. I went to bed, I dreamt about it. I woke up and did it all over again. And it was just like this really dark, intense period where I was just fully invested in that project. And I can't write like that now. Like it doesn't, it doesn't work that way because you have kids running around. So that's fine. That doesn't mean you can't have a successful career. If you have kids, it doesn't mean you can't do cool things. It just means that your working style has to be different. And so I think it does set different parameters around what the day looks like. It also has made me appreciate or consider the question of like leverage and where is the highest leverage choice? What is the most important thing for me to focus on? So one of the questions I really like to ask myself is, what is the work that keeps working for me once it's done? So as an example, this, this conversation is a good example. So when I, Atomic Habits came out, I did a bunch of interviews and some of them were on radio shows and some of them were on podcasts. And I don't really do radio interviews anymore because when I'm done with them, as soon as you get off the air, all the work that I just put in vanishes, you know, like nobody's here listening to it anymore. But I've done 200 podcast interviews at this point, And there's somebody out there right now listening to some conversation that I previously recorded. Yeah. And so it's almost like there are 200 versions of James out there that are still continuing to do work. 
So those hours, that is the work that's continuing to work for me once it's done. Mm -hmm. And once you have kids, or it doesn't even have to be kids, it could just be anybody who's really tightly constrained on time. What you realize is that you need to have some, even if it's just five minutes or 30 minutes each day where you're working on something that falls into that category, then you can still be really productive because the work that you put in each day starts to layer on top of the day before and it starts to compound and you get a year or two years down the line and you have this like tidal wave of previous effort that's working for you. But if you don't do those things, if you don't work on work that keeps working for you once it's done, if you don't work on things that persist and compound, then the efforts that you're putting in are just, you're just kind of solving the emergency of the day and another day slips by and you didn't like build an asset. You didn't accumulate anything. And so the difference between those two tasks, tasks that accumulate and that build upon each other and persist and tasks that kind of vanish once the work is done, there's an enormous divide there. And I think as your time gets tighter, you need to be more and more focused on making sure you're spending at least a little bit of time each day in that bucket that's going to compound. Makes sense. A lot of sense. And I've heard you talk about the podcast thing before and I agree. It's sort of a shift in, in media and, and, you know, even just what you do is a whole new thing that it's not that new anymore. But I mean, the yeah, fact sure. that, I mean, my son was telling me last night about this kid that's a huge Kansas City Chiefs fan. I don't know if you've seen this kid, but he, you know, has autism and he's become this viral sensation and now the chiefs are going to have him announce the draft pick and this is a kid that likely would have been never heard of or seen and now has like a whole big thing right yeah, this awesome. is new media this is the way of the world now and you do need to really find those ways in which you can optimize yep. your your output with so much coming at you now you know, you mentioned needing to learn to say no more and you have to. And I know that you also mentioned a lot of entrepreneurial friends. I mean, I'm sure people are pitching you and throwing stuff at you and there's tremendous opportunity all over the place. I'd like to just learn a little. I've been kind of curious about where you're going now, what you are saying yes to, what does have you really energized knowing that, you know, life has changed a lot. What are you, what are you consciously picking to create now? Yeah, I'm still, to be perfectly honest, I'm still figuring it out. You know, yeah. like it's all, it's all happened so fast. You know, Atomic Habits has been out less than five years and the last like five years have been such a whirlwind. The first couple, I was just trying to figure out like how to get a hold of it all. And you know, oh, okay, everybody wants me to go speak here. And so let me take advantage of that and try to like take advantage of the opportunity. Cause you're like, what if this vanishes tomorrow? And then now it feels like, okay, maybe it's going to last for a little bit longer. So then how do I get comfortable here and try to manage that better? And then probably the next phase is like, okay, now you've kind of got your footing here. What do you really want to create next? Like, what do you want to be the next chapter? And I don't have a good answer to that yet. I'm still kind of figuring it out. I do think at some point I need to make this shift from what's the, where's the opportunity or what's best for the business or, you know, what would be best for the brand? And just say, you know what, like you focused that you, you acted that way and made decisions in that way for over a decade now. And that led to this great business, which is great. But now you're at a point where you really need to ask is, what do you want to create? Yeah. You know, like, what are you really just trying to build? What kind of contribution are you trying to make? Yeah. And I think that's a, a shift that I haven't fully made yet, but that's probably the next phase. Yeah. I mean, just not that you need me to say this, but I think that 
the fact that you haven't made that decision yet is great because there's nothing wrong with writing out what you created sure and you know letting that like live a full life yeah and also not rushing into the next thing yeah you know there will be plenty of opportunities it wasn't luck i mean you like you said you worked really hard for a long period of time to land on the thing and you're young and have the rest of your life ahead of you to continue to create i mean the other nice thing is the work itself is making a difference you know yeah it's not, it's not like what I'm doing now is not making a contribution like right. to like find something to make a contribution the next time. Right. You know, I, right. I feel really good about what it's done and yeah. it's helping people. And so it's, it's in that sense, I do want it to kind of fulfill its potential. Mm-hmm. You know, like how many people can we help? How, how far can we spread this message? I mean, the book is cheap. The book is $12, you know, like I'm not trying to sell some enormous high ticket item here. Like I want right. this to be as accessible as possible. Yeah. And so how can we get it to as many people as it could help? How can we spread it around the world? I mean, it's in 50 plus languages now, 56, 57 languages. So, um, you know, I think it still has a long road ahead of it and a lot of people that it could reach. And so I, I do want to capitalize on that. But at some point, you know, I'll, I'll think about what the next thing is I want to do yeah. as well. Good. Well, hey, I really appreciate you taking the time. Um, I know that there's a lot of things that you say no to and I'm honored that you said yes to do this. Yeah, thank you. And- enjoyed getting a chance to talk with you and you know thanks again for what you're doing you are making a contribution you know i can tell you firsthand it it definitely made a difference in my life and i don't think it's a small thing i think it's a big thing it's a big deal and really it's up to you to decide how you want to make a contribution next because you've already made a really big one thank you so much yeah thanks for that i appreciate the opportunity and uh yeah this is a really fun conversation thanks for having me my pleasure thanks james Thank you for listening to the Gravity Podcast. Please subscribe to the show at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about the entire Gravity Project, please go to gravityproject.com. Please check out the podcast on Instagram at the Gravity Podcast. Music heard of the show is provided courtesy of Kyle Lamoro and Oliver Oak.